Good evening and welcome to the Lakatosh Award Lecture. So before we begin tonight, I would just like to make a brief announcement, which is that right after this uh, the award lecture and the question and answer session, we will have a reception out in the lobby where the award will actually be presented to Professor Akasha afterwards, and everyone's invited to attend that as well. A little wor one word about the format. Uh, Samir will speak for about an hour, and then we will have a 20-minute question and answer session. And it will really have to be a strict 20 minutes because we're under a tight time schedule. But then after that, if you have further questions, I suppose you'll be able to talk to Samir afterwards. Now, just a brief uh, word of introduction. So Professor Akasha <coughs> is a professor of philosophy at the University of Bristol, where he specializes in the philosophy of biology and the philosophy of science more generally. He will be speaking tonight on individuals and groups in evolutionary biology. So um, let's just thank Samir and Karen number 10. Hey, thanks very much, Jason. The title of my talk today is Individuals and Groups in Evolutionary Biology. The work I'm going to talk about lies at the interface of philosophy of science and evolutionary theory, and also draws to some extent on ideas from economics. The themes of the talk are as follows. Firstly, hierarchy in the biological world. By that, I refer to the fact that the entities biologists describe form a nested hierarchy down from the smallest organic molecules up to the level of whole ecosystems. Secondly, individual versus group interests. I use the expressions individual and group in a relatively generic sense. So individual means small unit, group very often just means large, large unit. And I refer to here to the fact that the evolutionary interests of individuals and groups of smaller things nested in bigger things need not always coincide. Thirdly, the theme of conflict versus cooperation among biological units. And fourthly, a discussion called the levels of selection discussion in evolutionary biology. An old and heated controversy in evolutionary biology uh, that forms the subject matter of much of my book. These themes are major themes in the area of biology known as social evolution theory. What social evolution theory does is deal with the operation of natural selection in social settings. Um, and that's to say in settings where organisms interact with each other and engage in behaviours that affect not just their own reproductive success, chances of reproductive success, but also that of other organisms, so so-called social behaviour. What we're concerned then with is the evolution of social behavior by natural selection. Um, this is an intrinsically fascinating area of science, but also has implications, I will argue, for many different areas of philosophy and indeed for, for many intellectual inquiries in other fields too. However, the field has long been plagued by certain conceptual uh, questions, conceptual and philosophical problems which underpin it and therefore requires careful philosophical scrutiny. So that's the, that's the main claim I want to make. I'll introduce this area with an old puzzle that will be familiar to many people, old famous puzzle in evolutionary biology concerning the origin of altruistic behaviour or of altruism. So altruism in, or altruistic behaviour in this context 
refers to behavior which an organism might perform, which harms its own reproductive interests, but boosts those of others around it. And the challenge is to understand how such behavior can evolve in the face of the obvious fact that natural selection at first blush should disfavor such behavior. I mean, natural selection teaches us that to expect organisms to engage in behaviors that will benefit their own chances of survival and reproduction, not those of others around them. So on the face of it, altruistic behavior, in the sense in question, should be selected against. And yet, it's quite common in nature, as has long been recognized. So to take a handful of the many possible examples I could have chosen, vampire bats, which feed on blood, on the blood of small mammals that they catch in the night, these bats need to feed regularly. If a bat goes two nights in a row without feeding, it's very likely to die. Three nights, it'll definitely die. And yet, they don't always manage to successfully hunt of a given night. So what these bats do is regurgitate blood to feed others, particularly younger ones, mm -hmm. not necessarily their relatives, often not, who have failed to feed on a given night, thereby saving them from starvation. Such a behavior on the face of it appears to be altruistic. It appears that the regurgitation of blood is an act that costs, is costly for the organism that does it, but benefits someone else. Second example, here's a honeybee colony. Now, as is well known, many of the worker bees in a honeybee colony are sterile, so their biological fitness, their own personal biological fitness is zero. They're destined to never leave any offspring. They instead devote their whole lives to aiding the reproduction of the queen. And this is an extreme of altruism, because they're sacrificing all of their chance of having offspring in order to aid the queen's reproduction. They do that you know, by tending the larva, by foraging for food, by protecting the nest, and in other ways. And the same is true in very many other so-called eusocial insect species that form tightly integrated colonies. Thirdly, it recently been discovered that in many, many microbial species, social behavior is also exhibited. So here we have a bacterial species of the Pseudomonas group. And the interesting thing about these organisms, these bacteria, is that they release agents into the environment called siderophores which enable them, uh, these siderophores re release um, iron that's bound in the organism and thereby making it available for bacterial metabolism. Now the details of how it works doesn't really matter. The important point is that the action of producing these siderophores is a public good in that other organisms in the environment benefit just as the individual um, other organisms in the environment benefit rather than the individual bacterium itself. It raises the obvious question, why bother doing it? Why not just be around other people who are doing this? What's, what's in it for the individual bacterium? So how could it get there? Now this is an old puzzle, as I say. First appreciated that it is a puzzle was appreciated by Darwin himself in a number of places, most notably in his book The Descent of Man from 1879, where Darwin was interested in the question of how pro-social or altruistic behaviors could have arisen in early hominids. Darwin made the following remark. He said, 
He who was ready to sacrifice his life rather than betray his comrades would often leave no offspring to inherit his noble nature. So you see Darwin's appreciation of the problem. He's saying, look, if you, you know, the, the, the self-sacrificial or, or altruistic strategy will cost you, will cost the organism. So how can, it, how can it evolve? And Darwin then proposed a tentative solution as follows. Darwin continued that passage. However, a tribe including many members who were always ready to sacrifice themselves for the common good would be victorious over most other tribes, and this would be natural selection. So what Darwin is doing here is postulating that a process of selection might take place between groups themselves rather than between individuals within any one group. So that's what's sometimes referred to as natural selection acting at the group level. So schematically, Darwin's tentative hypothesis can be represented as follows. So here we have a population of organisms, the small dots represent organisms, living in groups, in a, in, a, in a group structure population, and the organisms are of two types. The yellow ones are selfish, so don't engage in this self-sacrificial pro-social behavior, and the red ones are altruistic, and so do do that. So Darwin's suggestion <coughs> is that if you can find attention to any one group, then within the group, the selfish ones have a relative advantage, mm -hmm. so we'll leave more offspring than the that the altruistic ones, because they don't incur the cost of being altruistic, but they benefit from others' altruism. However, at the between-group level, Darwin's suggestion is, groups like this, with a lot of reds, may do better than groups like this, with a lot of yellows, even though within any group, including this one, the yellow must do better than the red. And Darwin's suggestion is that the between-group selective force may be strong enough to outweigh the within-group selective force, and the net result of that, that two-level evolutionary process may be an increase in the frequency of altruism. Now, I mean, obviously, the, the question cries out for a mathematical analysis, which it wasn't given until many, many years later, many years after Darwin's death. But essentially, Darwin's intuition was absolutely right, that this can indeed, under, under the required circumstances, work. Notice here that we have an analogue of one of the classical questions of political philosophy, namely how self-interested agents can behave in a way that maximises or doesn't harm the welfare of their whole group. So that's the idea of group selection. And it gives rise, it generalises this idea of a two-level selection process into what's called the levels of selection question, which can be posed as follows. At what level of the biological hierarchy does natural selection act? The question arises from the interaction of two factors. The first is the fact of hierarchical organization in the biological world itself, of which more in a moment. And the second is the abstractness of Darwin's basic reasoning, of the basic Darwinian logic. So stripped down to its bare essentials, what Darwin's argument amounts to is simply this. He says, look, imagine a population of entities which satisfies three conditions. It exhibits three features. Firstly, the entities vary one from another. They're not all alike. They're not all the same. So they can, the population contains different types. Secondly, suppose that those different types have different fitnesses, where fitness here just means roughly the number of offspring that you leave. 
So the variance in that population differ with respect to how many offspring they leave. And suppose, thirdly, that type is inherited for the organisms. There's a correlation between parents and offspring with respect to type. Then under those conditions, the population has got to evolve, where evolve here just means that its composition will change over time. The frequency distribution of the types will alter over time. Notice the abstractness of the argument in that all I said was a population of entities. I said nothing about what those entities were. We can depict that pictorially as follows. Here we have a population containing different types or different colors of dot. Uh -huh. And over time, you see the frequency changing under the influence of natural selection. So the blue ones in this example becoming more, more common and the red ones declining in frequency. Combine that point, the abstractness of Darwin's reasoning, with the fact that the entities biologists describe form this nice hierarchy. For many purposes, we can treat the gene as the lowest level in, for evolutionary reasoning. Genes align themselves, are physically connected on chromosomes, which then reside in cells. Cells go to make up tissues and organs and multi-celled organisms, the thing that we often call the individual. Mm -hmm. Organisms themselves go to make up colonies and groups. Then at higher levels still, we have species and perhaps even whole ecosystems. Now, how exactly to characterize this hierarchy is by no means a trivial question. Um, and indeed, it's not obvious that there's some single biological relationship that adjacent members of this hierarchy really bear to each other. So there's a lot could be said about that. But for the moment, the crucial point is just to realize that the notion of fitness of Darwinian fitness or number of offspring can apply at multiple levels in this hierarchy and, they, and therefore in principle natural selection can act at more than one level of the hierarchy. However, the consensus for a long time in evolutionary biology in the 1960s and 70s was that although all of that is true in theory, what I've been saying, in practice it doesn't really matter because group selection is a relatively minor evolutionary factor. And the phenomenon that Darwin invoked it to explain, namely altruistic behavior, can in a way be explained in another way. And so biologists, biology students for a long, long time, and still to some extent in some places today, were taught that individual selection is all that matters in practice, even if there are other theoretical possibilities. And indeed, the, notion, the whole notion of group-level selection became something of a heretical notion for many, many years in evolutionary biology and other fields. The source of this consensus um, is multiple. In part, it stemmed from the seminal work of W.D. Hamilton, the Oxford biologist, on what became known as the theory of kin selection, which posits that the vast majority of altruistic behavior in nature is preferentially directed towards kin, and then draws on the fact that kin share genes. Mm -hmm to argue that, in fact, a gene which induces an organism to behave altruistically may be furthering its own chance of, of prospering in the gene pool because the beneficiaries of that altruism have a higher than random probability of themselves carrying the gene. And that's the basic logic behind the so-called gene's eye view of evolution, later popularized uh, memorably by Richard Dawkins, and which indeed goes a long way to, to clarifying this field and explaining the, the, the empirical phenomena. This was part of the reason why group selection fell from favor. The second reason 
was more philosophical um, or more logical and stemmed from a trenchant argument made by the American evolution biologist George Williams in, 60, in the 1966 book, Adaptation and Natural Selection, in which he argued that many people who had previously invoked the notion of selection for group advantage had reasoned fallaciously. And the fallacy that he diagnosed became known as the good of the group or the good of the species fallacy. And on this point, Williams was absolutely right. Um, however, his argument was sometimes thought to discredit the very notion of group selection, which it really didn't. I mean, what his argument amounts to is the following entirely pertinent observation that it's fallacious to assume that individual level natural selection will necessarily produce group beneficial outcomes. And if you reason that way, then you're making an illegitimate appeal to group level advantage. And Williams argued correctly that this was a fallacy committed by many, many people, professional biologists and many other people who thought in a, in a not particularly systematic way about how natural selection works. So for example, famous Austrian biologist Conrad, Conrad Lorenz, Nobel Prize winner, <coughs> Uh, for his work on animal behavior. In his famous book on aggression, Lorenz was discussing the phenomenon of ritualistic fighting among animals. So this occurs when, in many, many social mammals, when two males, for example, two deer, will often square up to each other as if to have a fight. Uh -huh. But then the weaker one backs off, and no combat actually takes place. And Lorenz was puzzled by this. He wanted to know, well, you know why doesn't the stronger one actually engage the weaker one in combat? Why, why, the, why all this ritualistic fighting, given their enormous armaments that these deer carry? And Lorenz, said, and Lorenz argued as follows. He said, well, look, it would obviously be disbeneficial for the whole species if the males spent all their time and energy fighting with each other. And that was the, that was the argument that Williams correctly pointed out can't be correct. I mean, it's true, no doubt, it would be disadvantageous for the species, uh, but that's not why they don't do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lorenz's argument is akin to trying to argue that the reason why earthworms burrow into the soil and have physiological adaptations for burrowing into the soil is that it benefits the whole ecosystem by aerating the soil. It does do that, uh -huh, but that's not why they do it. I mean, to have a genuine understanding, a Darwinian understanding of the behavior you have to, of the earthworm's actions, you have to be able to prove advantage to the earthworm, not to some larger collective of which they form a part, unless you're positing a process of selection at some higher level. So the fallacy then is in invoking the notion of Darwinian advantage at a different level from the level at which one's invoking the, the principle of natural selection itself. Very important point, but doesn't go to show by any means that um, group level selection can't happen. And indeed in the last 15 years or so we see a dramatic shift of opinion in this field and the rise of what's sometimes called multi-level approaches to selection, which reassesses the old consensus and in a way is a return to Darwin's view and argues that the idea of selection at multiple hierarchical levels is both logically coherent and empirically um, important. Motivation for this reassessment is part empirical and part conceptual. So part of the motivation is just that not all social behavior is kin-directed. So for example, in symbiotic unions between organisms, highly important ecologically, then we find social behavior being expressed to non-kin. There are many, many other examples. Another, part, another motivation is the increasing realization that it was never right 
to contrast the gene's eye way of reasoning with the hypothesis of group-level selection. But these are really two ways of representing the evolutionary dynamics, not two alternative hypotheses about what happens in nature. And this, incidentally, um, is an instance of a, of a more general opposition, philosophical opposition, that you find again and again in this area, where it's unclear whether apparent conflict between hypotheses is genuine empirical conflict or is rather a question of convenient, which is a more convenient representation. And thirdly, and most importantly, theorists have increasingly realized, or not, I mean, not realized for the first time, but emphasized that indivi individuals themselves, of course, are groups of cooperating units. So an individual multi-celled organism, of course, is a group of cooperating cells engaged in a highly complicated division of labor, all working for the good of the whole. And a cell itself, of course, is a highly adapted unit containing sub-constituents, all working together for the good of the cell. So the idea that selection for group advantage can't work or can't happen, it, it, it's impossible that that could really be true. And this has given rise to an interesting program of research concerned with what's called transitions in individuality in evolution. So this is what happens when we find free-living individuals in nature. Individual, again, just means smaller unit, purely relative designation. When individual, individuals living in nature, capable of surviving and reproducing alone, coalesce into a larger unit, uh -huh, which then itself actually becomes a new, higher-level individual. This leads to an increase in hierarchical complexity and of, of necessity involves a multi-level selection process. And what this teaches us, of course, is that the biological hierarchy is not something we can treat as given. It's not the ancestral state, but it is itself the product of evolution, something that early research in the, on the levels of selection problem never really took account of. Examples of these transitions, which are believed to have happened many, many times in the course of life on Earth. Firstly, going way back to the earliest days, you know, three, three, four billion years ago of life on Earth, it's believed that the single, the earliest replicating molecules quickly formed themselves into cooperative networks, perhaps because they um, had catalytic effects that complemented each other, they boosted each other's rate of replication or something. In any case, they formed themselves into cooperative networks. <laughs> Individual genes became physically linked together, so had their fate tied together by becoming a single chromosome. Prokaryotic, well, that's bacterial cells, eventually gave rise to eukaryotic cell. That means any cell that isn't bacterial, in effect. And a the origin of a eukaryotic cell is a symbiotic union of two distinct prokaryotic or bacterial cells. Much later, then, single-celled organisms evolved into multi-celled organisms. Mm -hmm. Multi-celled solitary living organisms eventually evolved, in some cases, in, into colonies, as in the social insects. And possibly, some people have argued that the small tribes that we lived, that humans lived in for much of the last 300,000 years, are transforming now into larger societies, although it's questionable whether that one really counts. Um, the interesting thing about these transitions is that essentially the same thing happened in each case. Smaller units somehow came together to form a larger cooperative network. And the crucial question then is why did that happen? How did that happen? And how was the welfare of the group reconciled with the, the competing interests of the individuals forming the group? 
In any case, what this goes to show is that the old argument that individual level selection is all that matters in practice really can't be right. And that of necessity, a two-level selection process, if not, if not more than two, is involved every time one of these transitions happens. And the higher level has to dominate the lower level for the transition to go to completion. So a useful model system that, for studying these that people have looked at concern these blue-green algae called vulvacines. You can find these in many garden ponds, um, single-celled single algae. Here are four closely related species of them. In this species here, gonium, then essentially the, the, the individual cell is still the basic Darwinian unit. You know, they get together and interact a bit in groups, but they, they retain the ability to survive and reproduce alone. However, B and C are intermediate stages. By the time we get to D, called volvox, this thing here really is a rudimentary multi-celled organism mm -hmm. in that it has a division of labor. Some cells specialize in one thing, and other cells specialize in another, specifically some specialize in reproduction, while others specialize in the survival of the thing. And it functions like a, like a genuine multi-celled organism. So then the challenge is to understand how you get from A to D, roughly speaking. Obviously raises this interesting conceptual question of when you have an individual and when you have a group. So it's examples like this have convinced many theorists that multi-level selection has got to happen. A, relate, a distinct development, though, and a purely theoretical development, derives from the work of this chap here, George Price, odd-looking chap, one of the great unsung heroes of 20th century evolutionary biology, an American geneticist working in London uh, in the early 1970s. And what Price did was to provide a set of concepts for thinking about multi-level selection and a formalism for analysing it, for showing how it could work and for studying it, that became known as Price's Equation. And quite remarkably, for a field such as biology, a purely theoretical development went a long, long way to convincing people that some particular hypothesis, apparently empirical hypothesis, was tenable. And this development was Price's Equation, which played a, a large role in the resurgence of attention to multi-level natural selection. Price's Equation shows how the strength of natural selection at each of the various levels at which it's operating can be compared. And Price, the key to what Price did was, in, in essence, nothing more than a definition or a, or a way of thinking about selection. What Price argued was that, stripped down to its essence, what natural selection means, really, is just a correlation or a covariance between the fitness of an organism, how many offspring it has, and some trait that it has. So selection, he argued, amounted really to character fitness covariance, which in a sense is obvious, because it's just another way of saying if some types do better than others because of some character of theirs, in other words, if there's a correlation of covariance between the character and reproductive fitness, then natural selection will operate. But what isn't obvious, but what Price showed, was that the total evolutionary change depends in a very neat way on the magnitude of the covariance between character and fitness at each hierarchical level. So we can illustrate those concepts very simply by looking again at this diagram that we use to illustrate Darwin's hypothesis. So here again we have individuals nested inside groups. And suppose we're interested in the total change, say, in the proportion of the red ones, the altruistic types, over time. Well, 
What you can do to, to work that out, Price showed, is firstly to look at the association between the fitness of a group, the reproductive success of a whole group, and the proportion of red ones in it. And that'll probably be a, there'll probably be a positive correlation there, because as we've seen, ones with a lot of altruists tend to do better. Well, then secondly, Price argued, you have to look at each individual group, and within that group, treating that for the moment as the whole population, look at the covariance between the character and fitness within the group. And within the group, it's going to be negative, because as, as we've seen, the yellow ones are at a relative advantage relative to the red ones within the group. So what Price's equation allows then is the total evolutionary change, which in that example just means the change in the proportion of the red dots, the altruistic ones, in the global population over time, can be expressed as the sum of two components, one attributable to group level selection and one individual level selection. Mm -hmm. And these two components will usually be opposite in sign if the behavior in question is a social behavior in that group level selection will favor it if it's an altruistic behavior. An individual level selection will disfavor it. And what Price showed is that the first component is simply the covariance between the fitness of a group and the character of that group. So that's how many offspring the group as a whole leave and the proportion of yellow dots within it, or red dots within it, rather, which will be positive. And an individual selection component, <coughs> which is the average taken over all of those groups, of the within-group covariance between fitness and character, which is going to be negative. Because within each group, individual character being altruistic anti-correlates with, with fitness. Um, and so then this in, this, in effect, tells us the condition that must be satisfied for an altruistic behavior to spread. One highly interesting feature of the equation is that the term inside this averaging operation here Mm -hmm. has the very same form as this group selection term here. And that's the formal expression of the fact that natural selection works in essentially the same way, up and down the biological hierarchy. Mm. That within groups, a selective process takes place if there's a suitable correlation between character and fitness. And frame-shifted up to the between-group level, the same thing is true. And that receives formal expression in this um, <coughs> fact. Okay. So now, moving on to philosophical issues connected with this, with this body of, of research, which is what the bulk of my book is about. Now, it's, it, it's quite natural to say, and, and some biologists have said things like this, that now the concepts are clear, thanks to the work of many, many people, including this Price guy and others. Um, I mean, the only questions that really remain are empirical, to find out, you know, in practice, how does selection work in this hierarchical system, and you know, how groups did evolve from individuals, and so on. But I argue, on the contrary, that in fact, this body of science is replete with unclear, <laughs> philosophical unclarities uh, that really do need to be brought to the surface. One group of them concern the concepts of causality, reduction, and emergence, which I'll talk about in a moment. A second group of philosophical issues concerns this issue of realism versus conventionalism that I alluded to before. That's the question of whether 
the sort of one true fact, if you like, about the levels at which natural selection is operating, or whether the choice between alternative hypotheses might in fact be conventional, at least in some cases, as has long been argued. Very interesting uh, discussion, though I won't be able to go into that here now. And then finally, implications that all of this stuff has, that the field of social evolution broadly has, for the fields of ethics and political philosophy. So I'll say a little bit about each of those, one and three, in the remaining time. Causality. Well, it's straightforward <clears throat> that Darwinian explanations are causal. So when you give a Darwinian explanation of why some trait has come to spread in a population, that's normally regarded as a causal explanation. You're saying you know, why it is that that trait, what caused that trait to become more common over time. And that can be captured alternatively by saying that there was selection for the trait in question. Namely, the trait had a positive causal influence on the, 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 the reproductive success of the bearers of the trait. Equivalently, the notion of adaptation is a causal notion. I take, I take this as, as rare. And that means clearly then that if we observe a correlation between some character and fitness, then we can ask the question whether that correlation reflects a direct causal relationship between the two variables, the character and the fitness, or whether it arises for some other reason. question you can always ask when you find two correlated variables. Does one causally influence the other, or are they correlated for some other reason? All straightforward. Um, however, when you frame shift this obvious and simple and well-known point into up to a multi-level context, things look rather more, rather more difficult. Uh, the cause-correlation distinction, I argue, in a multi-level setting is rather less clear. I mean, in a, in a single-level setting, where we're just interested in determining whether the co a correlation between a character and fitness reflects a causal influence or not, I mean, it's conceptually clear, well-known statistical techniques for trying to find out the answer. But at multiple levels, it's not conceptually clear at all. Because we have to take account of the possibility that a correlation between a character and fitness at one hierarchical level may be a side effect of causal processes of the action of natural selection at another level, leading to the appearance of a causal process of selection at the higher level. And conceivably, this might work in reverse as well. Um, this is ob obviously a possibility. And it immediately confounds the attempt to try and read um, the answer to the levels of selection problem off something like Price's equation, despite the fact that people routinely try to do that. So where this is the case, where we have an association between fitness and character at a higher level that's the result of lower level natural selection, mm -hmm. I say that you've got a cross-level byproduct. And we can illustrate that diagrammatically as follows. So the, the thick arrow <coughs> indicates causation. Mm -hmm. So it indicates that some lower level character causally influences the fitness of the lower level individuals. Mm -hmm. These black lines here illustrate dependence, the fact that the properties or characters of the group depend on the characters of the individuals contained within it. And similarly, for the fitness of the whole group, depends presumably somehow on the fitnesses of the individuals contained within it. And then the dotted line indicates that we have a correlation up here that's not causal. And this is what I call a cross-level byproduct, me implying that there's no causal selection process going on up here. It's all lower level. And examples of this 
You can think of very, very many examples of this. One is, if you imagine a multi-group population of the sort I depicted earlier with those red and yellow dots, uh -huh, but a purely non-social trait, where a trait that has no effect on others, but purely on self. There may well be an association and a correlation between character and fitness up at the group level, simply as a side effect of the fact that some of the, the, fit <clears throat> the, some of the individuals, some of the groups rather, contain more of the fitter individuals than one of the other groups. So this is a very common scenario. Bears on an interesting controversy in the 1980s and 90s, spearheaded by this biologist Stephen Jay Gould, regarding the concept of species selection. Gould argued forcefully that it made sense to think of a process of natural selection taking place between whole species, favoring some species and driving others extinct. Mm -hmm. um, however, the, he, he failed to, to notice that very often in the, exam in the purported examples of this, what was happening was simply that some species contained fitter individuals than others, and the association between the species character and the, the success of the whole species was simply an incidental side effect of the lower level selection process. And then these algae again illustrate the point. So in effect this illustrates the difference between A, uh, where the Darwinian unit is still the, the lower level cell, and D, where we have a rudimentary multi-celled organism. I mean, in A then, although it's true that, you, that these things form groups, and the groups differ in fitness, to a large extent, the relative um, differences in fitness between the groups of the A species uh, is a side effect of the intrinsic differences in fitness between different types of A cell, uh -huh, where that's not the case in species D. So in effect, this gives us an indication uh, that D is a real group, whereas A is not. So this then leads to a key issue, which I claim is in effect the issue, that's the, the, the real underlying issue in all of this levels of selection debate, and has caused, new, <laughs> caused untold confusion. Um, by not being brought out into the, into the open. And the issue is simply this. Suppose you discover a, 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 co a covariance or correlation between character and fitness at any level. What's, what's required for that to be the result of causal processes at the level in question, rather than an incidental side effect of causal processes taking place at some other level? All of the various criteria that we find in both the biological and the philosophical literature for determining the true level of selection, I argue, are really attempts to, to answer this implicit question, which is necessary to bring out into the open. And it's not a purely empirical question by any means, in that, I mean, it's not, it's not clear what must be the case in order for this to obtain. Presumably, autonomy from lower-level processes of some sort is required. But how exactly to characterize that, how precisely to characterize it, very far from clear. Um, and indeed, two arguments we find have been made, at least two arguments on this point, in the literature. So one suggestion that's often made is that it's something or other to do with the existence of emergent properties at the level in question. Another suggestion is that, in fact, it's never possible. The suggestion has often arisen in, in specific instances of this question in, in biology that it must always be possible to account for the higher-level association between character and fitness from lower-level individualistic 
in lower-level individualistic terms. And so the association at the higher level can, e can only ever be non-causal. And that can be illustrated with what I call the supervenience argument. So supervenience is a word that philosophers use just to mean dependence. Mm -hmm. So the argument that's sometimes put, uh, not quite in these terms, but this is the underlying logic of the argument we find being made, is that the property of the group, the bigger thing, and the fitness of the bigger thing, clearly have got to depend on the properties of the individuals and the, that, that compose those groups. Mm -hmm. And that therefore the causation must always, can only be lower level. So autonomous higher level selection, according to this argument, is simply impossible. Now it was never quite stated like this, um, but is implicitly, I mean, is, uh, an argument of this type is, is used again and again. And so in effect, the suggestion is that there can never be a causal arrow up here. It can, it can only ever look like this. So a reductionistic approach to the levels of selection, which posits that individual level selection is all important, is always going to be possible. Um, so philosophers may note that this is the analogue of a notorious, biological analogue of a notorious argument that's often been made in the philosophy of mind about the relationship between brain states and mental states. Can't go into all that for now, but this is the argument that says that the higher level association can never be causal. A very different line of argument tries to escape this conclusion by saying that it makes all the difference whether the group in question possesses genuine emergent properties or not. So the idea here is that some group characters may be emergent with respect to lower level characters. And that really just means that the dependence of the higher level, the group character on the lower level, is highly complicated in effect. And that's what it really amounts to. Um, and the contrast here is between group-level characters that are mere aggregations or statistical summations, if you like, of lower-level characters. So, for example, if you contrast an insect colony or some insect colony, say a honeybee colony, which is a real proper unit with a mammalian group, mm -hmm. this illustrates the sort of thing people have in mind, where it appears that... I mean, clearly, this, this thing is a, a real group, this group of baboons. Mm -hmm. And clearly, you can talk about its properties. You can say how many baboons are in it, the total body mass of the baboons that are in it, et cetera, et cetera. But the, there's, a, there's a sense in which those are not real properties of the, the, of the, the group as a whole. Uh, they're, they're just aggregates of lower-level properties. Whereas something like the extent of division of labor between the different worker castes in this colony or something is arguably a real property, a real biological property of the whole unit. Obviously depends on the properties of the lower level units, but the dependence is much more attenuated. And so it's, it's then argued that this distinction may help us understand how there can be a genuine causal arrow up here between the group character and fitness. However, I think that this argument, intriguing though it is, neglects a crucial distinction between two things. I mean, one possibility is that the higher level association between character and fitness is the result of lower level natural selection. Mm -hmm. And the second possibility is that that higher level association is the result of some causal processes or other taking place at the lower level. Mm -hmm. And the crucial question here is really why? So what we're interested in doing is trying to determine the level of the biological hierarchy at which we need to invoke 
the Darwinian principles at which we should diagnose adaptation. So what really matters is whether lower level selection is responsible for that higher level association. I mean, on plausible metaphysical principles, two will always be true. I mean, there'll always be a microcausal explanation, arguably, for any higher level association. But the interesting question is, is that lower level explanation a selective one or not? And the answer to that may be yes or no. The one is what matters. And that in turn suggests that this, the appeal to emergent properties is out of place in this context. Because essentially, the emergent property notion is an attempt to try and argue that the answer to two may be no. Whereas in fact, what we're interested in is whether one is true or not. Okay, so that's, all, that's that. So that's an example, I hope, of how metaphysical issues are, are really a, are at work in this body of evolutionary theory, crucially. In the final 15 minutes, I want to change tack a bit and talk about some links that this body of work has, this body of biological work has, with perennial questions in ethics and political philosophy. Um, and the question I'm concerned with is the tension between individual and group interests, which are potentially in conflict. This is just an instance of the well-known moral, you know, well-known in social science, that the action of self-interested agents may not maximize the, the welfare of the whole. This is you know, precisely the issue that Hobbes, Rousseau, other social contract theorists were interested in. as a central theme of political philosophy and in social evolution. And in the social evolution context, then, the crucial question is how can they be reconciled the individual and the group interests. Because such reconciliation has to be possible because it's happened repeatedly in evolution. So this, this, this harks back to the stuff I had earlier about so-called transitions in individuality, uh, when lower level units, capable of surviving and reproducing alone, coalesce to form a larger cooperative whole, as in the emergence of multi-cell creatures from single-celled ancestors. For this process to take place, it requires that their interests be aligned somehow, because otherwise competition between the lower level units will frustrate the functioning of the, the, of the higher level entity. And so how can, then, can individual and group interests be reconciled? Well, evolution has hit on numerous different ways of achieving this. So one of them is cl simply clonality or relatedness. Uh, if those lower level units are genetically related, in the limit if they're clonal, then their genetic interests are all the same. And that indeed explains why the majority of true multi-celled organisms develop from a single fertilized zygote, so all the cells contain the same genetic material. However, there are, there are multi-celled organisms of which that's not true, that are formed by the aggregation of relatively unrelated cells. But for the most part, clonality seems a good way of aligning the individual and the group interests. Another possibility is division of labor. If some people do one thing, another do another, mm -hmm. and both things are essential for the functioning of the whole, then their interests become aligned. A third is the policing of, sel of selfish behavior that we find um, you know, both in, in multi-cell creatures, the way, in the way that carcinogenic cell lines are attacked by the body's defenses, for example, in the, also in insect colonies, and the way that worker insects are often kept in line by other ones who make sure that they're looking out for the colony as a whole, not doing their own thing. And then fourthly, in randomi by randomization. Uh, so to see how, what that means and how that might work, 
because that's the one I want to talk about, to see how randomization might work, then suppose that you've got a group of people who are stuck in a lifeboat, right? Suppose there's 10 of them in the lifeboat. Um, and they realize that after 12 hours, say, then five of them have to be thrown overboard or, or else everyone goes down. Mm -hmm. So that immediately means that their interests are not aligned. I mean, some people are going to be thrown overboard and others aren't. Mm -hmm. However, for the first 12 hours, you want to design a system which makes it the case that they all work together to try and save this lifeboat from getting sunk. Uh -huh. Well, what do you do? Well, the answer is obvious. You draw straws, right? So you draw straws after 12 hours if you haven't been rescued. You draw straws, and five people have to get thrown overboard. Mm -hmm. But in that first 12 hours, before the lottery of the draw has taken place, then clearly it's in everyone's individual interest to work as hard as they can for the good of the whole, even though they may be find themselves in the sea in 12 hours' time. And that has an interesting echo in a famous argument in political philosophy and economics devised by Rawls in his book Theory of Justice by the economist John Harsani um, as a heuristic for thinking about what a fair allocation of, of society's resources would be. They designed this famous argument this famous thought experiment called the Veil of Ignorance thought experiment. So Rawls describes what he calls an original position in which every individual has to decide on society's allocation of resources, but you don't know which individual you're going to be. So you have to choose, in other words, you have to rank different allocations of resources. Uh -huh. So, you know, which might say... 10, you know, 10 units to individual 1, 20 to individual 2, 30 to individual 3, and so on. But you don't know which of those individuals you're going to be. And the idea is that the, the allocation that someone might choose in, but from behind this veil of ignorance captures a, corresponds to what a fair division of resources is, supposedly. You have an equal chance of being any individual. So then Rawls famously argued that... The <clears throat> I mean, clearly not, certainly not correct that the rational agent should choose the so-called maximin solution, so, so should favour the allocation that maximises the welfare of the least well-off, presumably on the grounds that the person has a chance of becoming that, that least well-off person, um, nowadays regarded as a, as a clearly flawed argument. Harsani presented an ingenious argument for the utilitarian solution to this, for the, for the idea that from behind the veil of ignorance you should choose the allocation of resources that maximizes the total utility of everybody. Also, for, for, for reasons we can't go into, a, a flawed argument. Um, however, their underlying point was quite right, that the veil does indeed align individual and group interests. And remarkably, we find an evolutionary analogue of this veil of ignorance that's highly relevant to explaining how evolution has managed to produce genomes. So genome just means the total set of genes within any one organism. Mm -hmm. So the, the tension here is between the self-interest of one gene within the genome and the interests of the genome as a whole. So the genes in an organism usually work for the good of it. So some of them build your liver, some of them build your heart, some of them do something else, etc., etc. They all contribute to the flourishing of the whole. Despite the fact that in sexual species, only half of the genes are going to make it into the next generation, just like in the lifeboat, right? So the genes all work for the good of the organism, roughly <coughs> speaking, to maximize the number of gametes 
uh -huh, of sperm and egg cells that the organism, of successful sperm and egg cells that the organism produces, despite the fact that only half of them, their chance of getting into any particular gamete is only 50%. Mm. Uh, and this creates an obvi obvious potential for conflict because it means that the fact that not all the genes are represented in each offspring, uh, any particular offspring that any one of us has, only contains half of our genes. So this would seem to be a potential conflict among the genes, a battle to try and get into that, into that offspring. And so then we face the question, yeah, but how is it that all the genes seem to work to, for the good of the whole, given that their interests aren't perfectly aligned? Um, here we have a depiction of the cell division process called meiosis, by which gametes are formed, the four daughter cells on the right, uh -huh, from diploid cells, so diploid cells which contain two copies of each chromosome, and notice that the gametes just contain one copy of each chromosome. So the crucial point then is that all of the genetic material is, the genetic material is halved in the process of forming these gametes, which then obviously fuse with each other to restore the full complement of chromosomes in the, in the fertilized zygote. Um, ask yourself the question, what aligns the interests of the gene and the whole genome? Well, the answer is randomization, just as in, just as in Rawls's Veil of Ignorance thought experiment. Each chromosome has an equal 50% chance of transmission. So that's the solution that evolution has hit on to ensure that the interests of all those genes are aligned, even though half of them aren't going into the next generation. Mm -hmm. So that means that a gene can't do any better than work for the collective good. A gene can't do any better than maximize the number of successful offspring its host organism is going to have, even though it's only got a half chance of being in any one of them, because it doesn't know, basically. Just in the same way as in, in that lifeboat, even though you've got a chance of being thrown overboard in 12 hours' time, before that 12 hours, in that first 12 hours, you're going to work hard with your fellow lifeboat members to try and um, promote the, the survival of you all. So that's an example of how randomization can align interests of small units and larger unit. What does, all, what does that show exactly? Well, I think what it shows is that the Rawls-Harsani thought experiment actually put into practice by evolution remarkably, something that they designed as just a hypothetical thought experiment is actually, has actually been put into practice by, uh, by evolution as a way of achieving precisely the thing that they were interested in, you know, aligning individual and group interests. It confirms their general idea and then leads to this outstanding question, um, of which I won't be able to discuss, very interesting question, I think, of what become of their arguments for the various supposed solutions to the veil of ignorance problem um, in the light of, of, of this fact that evolution has put into practice something very, very similar. Perhaps talk about that in discussion if anyone wants. Okay. So wrapping up then... Um, I hope to have been able to persuade you that this body of scientific ideas, both intrinsically fascinating and fertile territory uh, for philosophical scrutiny, and indeed in need of philosophical clarification, and that also I think it offers new insights into age-old philosophical problems, such as the one I've just been discussing for the last ten minutes or so. Now this, of course, bears on the broader question of what the relationship is between Darwinism and, and traditional philosophy. And that's an old and, and divisive issue uh, which continues to divide philosophers today. So one opinion on this question, 
we find expressed by the photogenic Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. He made the following assertion. He said, in his famous book, The Tractatus, Darwin's theory has no more relevance for philosophy than any hypothesis in natural science. Incidentally, one of the few readily intelligible assertions <laughs> in that book. Um, however, there's always been an opposing school of thought, to which I myself subscribe, that says, on the contrary, Darwin's theory has a unique and enduring relevance for philosophy. Um, and that's not a novel opinion by any means, in that it was the one that Charles Darwin himself um, believed in, perhaps unsurprisingly. So in unpublished notebooks that Darwin never intended to see the light of day, written in the 1830s, Darwin makes the claim, he who understands baboon would do more for metaphysics than God. <laughs> and so my final message then is that on this point, Darwin was right and Wittgenstein was wrong. Thank you.